0: Okay, how'd you guys find um, Paradise Lost? <laughs> Which means I mean I had read it uh, before, so what'd you read it for? Uh it have, like... Uh-huh. Again. Okay. So I like knew what was going on. hmm But otherwise. I mean, it's just Miltonic. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. There's no other way to describe Miltonic <laughs> than to describe Milton they say he's Miltonic. Um, how many people is the first reading? Um, just you. Okay. Uh, you, sir. Uh, so what did you guys think reading it the first time? <laughs> Nothing? Too hard? Sorry? Confusing? There's a lot of references, but I think I got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The, uh, there are a lot of references. No one gets them all. Um, in a way, that's part of the point. It's it's uh, part of the way epics work, um, going all the way all the way back to Homer, that they have a kind of encyclopediac um, um, aspiration. And the point is not that you should get everything, but that no matter who you are, you'll get something. Um, some of it will be stuff you know. Um, because in a way what epics are talking about is the whole world or all of history or how the entire world got to be the way it is and because you're a person in the world um, some of your history will overlap with um, the epics telling you about everything Um, so that's fine and you know Paradise Lost is people are continually writing new footnotes to new discoveries about stuff Milton is referring to um, and that'll go on, you know, for a while longer. Anyhow, what did you think reading it the first time? Um, it's a little confusing because, like I said, all the re- like she said all the references, but it flowed really nicely, and I thought it was really good. Yeah. Okay. Good. Sorry. That's okay. Um, and Maria, had you read Paradise Lost before? Uh-huh. Have you read Paradise Lost before yeah. this class? Uh-huh. Okay some parts. Okay, well there were two newbies so I just wanted to see um, what they thought Um, Okay, what uh, I think what we should do is begin by looking um, at the opening to book three of Paradise Lost which is what I wanted you to get to, those first 55 lines of book three Um, You don't have it Um, So poetry bring the text to class because we look at them Um, just in general, but um, and then we'll go back to the intimations of uh, the reason being that that part of what I want you to see is the way Wordsworth. What we're what we're doing here, what we're looking here, looking at here this first week, um, in a fairly simplified um, outline, is a relationship between Milton and then Wordsworth, and then Shelley, or slightly less simplified Milton, the earlier Romantics, and the later Romantics. That is that Wordsworth is responding very intensely to something in Milton, something he's learned from reading Milton about what it's like to read Milton in particular, what it's like to read more generally and what it's like to write um, under the influence or thrilled by the possibilities revealed by reading. So if you look at the opening to book three of Paradise Lost, um, and share if you can. Um, I think only half of you have the, the text. Uh, you probably know it by heart, right? Sort of. OK. Um, if you, if you look at the opening to book three of Paradise Lost um, what's happening here what we discover here what most of Milton's readers would have known um, you can find it on your phones by the way if that's the way to do it smartphone. I have a smartphone? <laughs> a smartphone? man wow that's, that's admirable that's just great yeah no it is um you can look on with Sarah on her phone. Or with Kevin on in his book. Look on. I know you've done this before, but still. You don't have a smartphone either? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, when the 21st century comes, um, everyone will have smartphones. That's my prediction. Um, okay. Um, Milton... Here, as at the very beginning of book one, talks a little bit about himself. Um, In this, he's following Homer, who does the same thing. That is that um, what epics generally are about are stories in which the storyteller is describing, as I say, the world in a kind of encyclopedic way, everything. Um, And um, writing with complete authority as the person who can tell the story of everything. Homer tells the story of the Trojan War and then he tells the story of the return of Odysseus. Um, Virgil tells the story of the Trojan War and of the founding of Rome by Aeneas. Dante tells the story of everything, of hell, purgatory, and heaven and how what people did on earth and what they thought on earth resulted in their going to hell, to purgatory, or to heaven. Dante, more than Homer and um, much more than Virgil, um, talks about himself in the Divine Comedy. Um, He is the traveler who goes through um, hell, purgatory, and heaven. He is guided through those places, guided, in fact, by Virgil, Um, who he meets he finds himself at the entrance to hell and he meets Virgil who has been dead for 1200 years for 1300 years Um, and um, he says I revere you to Virgil and Virgil says well I've been sent to lead you through these places so there's a place in epic sometimes very very expansive sometimes very very reduced but a place in epic where the epic storyteller, the epic poet, will describe himself or herself, will will um, be part of the story, will describe his or her own personal stakes in the story, partly because the entire world has a personal stake in it, and the epic poet is part of that world. As an individual, the epic poet also has a stake in it. Um, so in Milton, we get at the in the, what are called the invocations to the muse in Paradise Lost. That is, um, sing muse. The beginning of the um, Iliad is anger, sing, muse. Um, the beginning of Paradise Lost, a few lines later, is sing, heavenly muse. And the reason, do people know about the idea of the muse, why muses sing? Why poets call upon the muse? What's a muse, anyone? Yeah, it's uh, they're not full gods.
1: They're, they're sort of
0: deities. they're minor deities, minor goddesses of different aspects of uh, arts. Mm-hmm. But there's not all of them are art, right. There's, uh, there's a muse of history. There's a muse of astronomy. But of the of the of what are sometimes called the liberal arts, which include um stuff that you would take in science um even today. Yeah. And don't they like inspire their inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea of the muse, like all the gods, the muses are gods of uh, explaining human experiences. Um, and here the human experience that's being explained is the experience of inspiration, of getting an idea. Where does that come from? It's a mystery where ideas come from suddenly you have an insight, suddenly you see something, suddenly a line occurs to you if you're a poet, suddenly um, an equation occurs to you if you're a mathematician and so where do these insights come from? Well the mythology is they come from these goddesses of invention, these goddesses of inspiration so the idea of inspiration that word means to for someone to breathe something into you. Um, When you are inspired, they have breathed into you. Um, As in respiration, you all know that that means breathing. Inspiration is a breathing in. Expiration is when you breathe out. That's why it means to die. To expire means to breathe your last, to breathe out your last breath. Um, So when library books expire, that's a metaphor. Um, and it's a metaphor for um, human death, for breathing out. Um, So muses inspire poets. How do they do it? They feed poets their lines. So the idea in lots of poetry, but but it's a convention in epic, is you ask the muse, to inspire you with the words by which you can tell this story, to breathe those words into you. So the epic poet asks the muse, always begins with an invocation to the muse. As I say, the Iliad is very, very um, um, direct about that. Anger, sing, goddess. Sing is the second word, goddess the third. Yeah? I don't remember any aspect of that in the fairy queen. not so much. Um, yeah, there is. Um, yeah, there's some um, epic aspects to it for sure, but it definitely doesn't look a couple more. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, the relation of the muse to Spencer is, um, he does say, if, I, if my muse will help me, I'll be able to do this, but it's far more conventional. That is far less something that Spencer is really interested in exploring. But Milton is really interested in exploring it, Because the muse for Milton, the muse for the Greeks and for the Romans, um, is a minor goddess who is the patron of poetry, of epic, of history, of lyric, whatever. Um, The muse for Milton is God. That's where he's going to get this story from, God, or the Holy Spirit. Um, Does everyone know who the Holy Spirit is? The third person of the Trinity. Um, So the three persons of the Trinity are the Father, God the Father, the Son of God and the Holy Spirit, and so Milton looks to the Holy Spirit to inspire him. Spirit means breath that 's why um, alcohol is called hard hard liquor is called spirits because it volatilizes so quickly you can feel the alcohol volatilizing into the air if you have a pan of it, you can smell it. Um, or spirits of turpentine, anything that that um, um, yields a, a kind of a, a kind of volatilized gas is called a spirit because it's as though it's breathing out at you. The beginning of Genesis, um, the King James Version says, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. Does everyone know this? Uh, In the beginning the earth was out without form and void and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. I'm skipping some stuff. Um, that word spirit of God is the Latin and Greek translation of what in Hebrew is ruach Elohim, which would literally mean, well, you know Hebrew, right? Oh, I thought you said it Hebrew. No? OK, the breath of God. Um, so spirit means breath. And so you call upon the muse to breathe into you. And what better muse to breathe into you than the Holy Spirit, um, the breath of God? That's what the Holy Spirit is. Um, so um, Milton calls upon, at the beginning of book one, he calls upon the muse, the same muse, as he puts it, that did ins- that didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed how in the beginning heaven and earth rose out of chaos so that shepherd is Moses and he calls therefore upon the same spirit who inspired Moses to tell the story of the creation of heaven and earth and then the story of the fall of Adam and Eve when they eat the apple and Milton says help me to tell a similar story now in Book three, we spent the first two books in hell with Satan and his minions, um, where it's been nothing but darkness, darkness visible, and all around no light, but darkness visible served only to uncover sights or to discover sights of woe. So in hell, there's no light at all, the fires burn but they flicker with dark rather than with light. Um, What people see, what people see, what the fallen angels see, they see with rays of darkness striking their eyes, not rays of light. There is no light there. Um, Simply darkness visible. Now we get to the beginning of Book 3 and we return to light. And that's an amazing and wonderful thing, that return to light. Um, So he begins, Hail, holy light. That is, here I am, back in the light. And now, in this invocation of book three, we're going to learn something about the poet. Not only is he happy to be back in the light, but in real life, he can't see light because he is blind. Like Homer, he is blind. And this is true of Milton. Um, He went blind... In his 40s, um, and when he came to write *Paradise Lost*, um, which was um, about a decade later, he began it. Um, he'd been blind for 10 years. Um, his blindness was was last till the end of his life. His last great poem is um, about Samson, who has who is blinded. Um, in the book of Judges, which tells the story of Samson, that when the Philistines defeat him, um, they humiliate him, they cut off his hair, and they blind him. Um, So Milton, the experience of blindness, is an experience that is all too real for Milton. But now he's writing this poem. He will later tell us in Paradise Lost that he's writing the poem, um, that that he composes it nightly. That is, that he does this at night. Um, everyone else is asleep but for him there's no difference in what he sees during the day and what he sees during the night but at night um, he is able to compose the lines of Paradise Lost which he does and then the next morning he dictates them um, usually to his daughters who are um, helpful and oppressed Um, so there he is blind and thinking about light so he begins, Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn. So the first thing that came from heaven was light. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's why it's the offspring of heaven firstborn. So, hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn. Or, maybe a better way to describe light is to say, or of the eternal, co-eternal beam. That is, you are the ray of light that God sends out, as eternal as God himself is. Um, he exists, and he's bright. He's light itself. Or light is what streams from him, always or of the eternal co-eternal being, may I express thee unblamed. That is, may I um, talk of you without sinning. Since God is light, and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence in creation. So God is light. He dwelt in light from eternity. Um, So he dwelt in the light that shone from him. That light is the effluence, the outflowing of God's bright essence, which is uncreated, which has always existed. Um, Or hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream whose fountain who shall tell, Is that how you would prefer to be described? And then this description of light. Before the sun, before the heavens, that word. All of this is true from Genesis, by the way. I mean, all of this conforms to Genesis because God says let there be light as his first act of creation, but he doesn't create the sun and the moon until the fourth day. Um, So light is before the things which give light. According to Genesis, and that Milton finds really taking that idea that it's not that the sun creates light, it's that light already exists, and then the sun is created as a source of this light that already exists. So, before the sun, before the heavens, thou wert, and at the voice of God, as with a mantle, didst invest the rising world of waters, dark and deep. One from the void and formless infinite so God is creating the world of waters, our world the world which is three quarters ocean and light is descending upon it as he creates it so he addresses light and says thee I revisit now with bolder wing escaped the stygian pool that is the darkness of hell Surrounded by the river Styx. Stygian is the adjective for the river Styx. Escape the Stygian pool, the long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born with other notes than to the Orphean lyre. I saw the chaos and eternal night taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend, though hard and rare so I spent two books in hell helped down there by the heavenly muse so this is another invocation to the muse and now coming back to earth so he addresses light thee I revisit safe I'm back my imagination I had to think through hell but now I'm back in the precincts of light Thee I revisit safe and, and feel thy sovereign, vital lamp. He feels it. He feels sunlight. But thou revisits not these eyes. So I return to light, but light does not return to me. Thou revisits not these eyes. Here he tells us for the first time that he's blind. Thou revisits not these eyes, that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn so thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled so for whatever reason I'm unable to see and then this part yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt clear spring. Or shady grove Or sunny hill Smit with the love of sacred song So even though I can't see the light Nevertheless I wander the places where the muses haunt Places characterized so visually here Clear spring That's where, muses, that's where the muses um, hang out Spend <coughs> their time By clear spring or shady groves, or sunny hills. He, like they, are there because they are smitten, smit with the love of sacred song. But chief thee, Sion, and thy flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow, nightly I visit. So every night I go back to Sion in my imagination and see all this beauty, flowery brooks that that wash the hallowed feet of Mount Zion and flow warbling. Every night he goes there. Nor, he says, do I ever, nor sometimes, that is none of the time, do I forget those other two equaled with me in fate. So were I equaled with them in renown. Blind Thamarus and blind Maionides, so I don't forget those two poets. Thamorus, a poet whom Homer talks about in the Iliad. We know about Thamyrus from the Iliad. Thamorus had a singing contest against the Muses. He said, I'm a better poet than the Muses themselves, and he lost. And Homer says because he lost, because of his arrogance, he lost. And his punishment was that his memory was destroyed and he could no longer be a poet. And he was blinded. So here Milton is remembering this first of poets who was blind like him. Myonides is another name for Homer. It literally means the son of Myon. And Myon was Homer's father. So I don't forget those two great blind poets when I think of my own blindness, blind Thamorous and blind Myonides. I am equaled with them in fate. That is, it is my fate to be blind as well. I wish, so were I. Oh, would it be the case that I were also equaled with them in renown. That is, that I became as famous and as great a poet as they And he also remembers the blind prophets, Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. So his blindness has a good pedigree. So when I remember them, then I feed on thoughts that voluntary move harmonious numbers as the wakeful bird sings darkling and in shadiest covert hid tunes her nocturnal note. So I think of things that just Produce poetry in me, just as the nightingale sings her song in the darkness at night, singing darkly. Thus, with the year, seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even or morn or sight of vernal bloom or summer's rose or flocks or herds or human face divine sees none of that, but cloud instead, and ever during dark that is lasting forever, ever enduring, dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off and for the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out so much the rather thou, celestial light, shine inward. And the mind through all her powers irradiate their plant eyes, that is within the mind, all mist from thence, from in the mind, purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. Okay, so on Tuesday we spent a fair amount of time on the first four stanzas of the intimations of. Um, what is Wordsworth echoing in those stanzas from here have you noticed any of Wordsworth's echoes we were looking at how Shelley echoes Wordsworth in his sonnet to Wordsworth but now think about what Wordsworth might be echoing from Milton yeah Uh huh. Um, and they're gone from him now. In Milton's case, it's because we can't see any words, all Okay, good. So, the, so, in one way, the structure is just the same. I used to be able to see all these things, and now I can't. And in fact, if you recall the beginning of the Intimation Zone, there was a time when Meadow Grove and Stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem appareled in celestial light. Look at what Milton says. Yet not the more seaside I to wander where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill. smit with the love, a sacred song, but chiefly thee Zion and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow. So meadow, grove, and stream seems to be Wordsworth listing something like the places that he used to see appareled in celestial light and that Milton now sees appareled in celestial light, the clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill. Wordsworth is remembering that line in Milton. There's a lot of Milton in sometimes quoted word verbatim, this isn't verbatim, but it's close enough, it's a lot of Milton in Wordsworth. Um, and so what Milton is saying is, I'm blind, but still I can see with this inward light due to the muses. I can see in ways that people who are not blind may not be able... so much of the rather thou now go back to line 51 so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward so what is words worth echoing from that Just, if you have the Wordsworth with you, which I really hope you do, look at the opening. Celestial, celestial light. Yeah, exactly that phrase. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight, to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. The glory and the freshness of a dream. So, he is now saying... He no longer sees celestial light. He, Wordsworth, sees everything. There's nothing he doesn't see. The rain, he's not blind. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look rounder when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. And yet I know where'er I go that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. The sunshine is a glorious birth. I know where I go but there I've the passed away glory from the earth so he can see things perfectly fine but he sees no celestial light anymore so his experience is in one way the parallel of Milton's I used to see things that I can no longer see the things that I've seen I now can see no more if you take the GREs in English and the multiple choice gives you either Wordsworth or Milton for that, they both make perfect sense. Who said that? Wordsworth, Milton, um, Alice Walker, or Dryden? The only You can immediately get rid of Alice Walker and Dryden, because they don't talk about being blind. They don't talk about not being able to see what they once saw. But Wordsworth and Milton talk very explicitly about that, and it would be hard to know if you didn't remember who said that the things which I have seen, I now can see no more. That could easily be from Book Three of Paradise Lost. So they share that in common. The things that they have seen, they now can see no more. But for Wordsworth and for Milton, it's for opposite reasons. Wordsworth no longer sees celestial light, and so all he sees, all he has is what Milton calls mortal sight at the end of this invocation, line 55. Milton says, I want to see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. I don't have mortal sight anymore, but I can see what celestial light shows me. Whereas Wordsworth is saying, I have mortal sight just fine. It's the celestial light that I've lost. So both of them are describing a loss. But for Milton, the loss is of mortal sight. And for Wordsworth, in the ode on intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood, the loss is of immortal sight. So they share a sense of loss, of what they once had and that loss has to do with the loss of vision but the vision that Wordsworth loses is different from the vision that Milton loses so that's both the similarity and the difference between them so let's get back to the Intonations of. And what we've done is the first four stanzas, um, first four parts. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Thank you. Um, Which is where Wordsworth gave up the poem for about two years. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither has fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now? the glory, and the dream. So the story that he's told in the first four stanzas is something like this. Once I saw celestial light everywhere, and I was at a very high level in my life. And then, somehow, in the difference between the time that was, there was a time, and the time that is now, But now, I lost that. I fell from where I once was. I fell from having a heavenly apprehension of the world. Emerson, who was a great reader of Wordsworth and met him, um, asks and answers, the question, what is the face the world shows to every aspiring spirit? Strange to say, the fall of man. So what Emerson is saying, what Wordsworth has said before him, what the Romantics tend to say, is that what Paradise Lost is really about since it's about the fall first of Satan and then of Adam and Eve is an experience that is turned mythological here's a mythological story about about Adam and Eve falling and about Satan falling but is actually a psychological experience that every person has but expressed in a mythological story about some particular So the romantic reading of Paradise Lost is an anti-religious reading of it. What the romantics reading Paradise Lost said is Milton has told a mythological story about a universal human experience, which is the fall from childhood into adulthood. The fall from seeing the world as glorious And Edenic, like the Garden of Eden, to seeing the world as we see it as adults, as shabby and uninteresting and unable to thrill us anymore. And that's a fall. That's the fall that humans, that every human experiences. Every spirit says Emerson every aspiring spirit. So they read Milton as writing a religious version, or they read the importance of Milton as being simply couched in religious language, the description of all our experiences. And so what happens in the beginning of the Intimations Ode is you get Wordsworth describing something like the fall of Adam and Eve or since you guys read the first two books of Paradise Lost the fall of Satan but oh how unlike the place from whence they fell that's the lamentation that Milton gives the fallen angels how unlike the place from whence we fell is this dark world of darkness. So that description, once I felt like a god, I now realize. Once the world was appareled in celestial light. Once it was as though I was an angel. But look at me now. So Wordsworth is describing a fall when he describes how he feels in the contrast between there was a time and the but now. And then he gives up. He's fallen. There's a tree of many one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither has fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? That tree I told you on, on, I mentioned on Tuesday how much Blake loved that line There's a tree Of many one It's just a tree But it is what Wordsworth would say Milton Mythologized As the tree The tree of knowledge of good and evil But now you just look at the world There's a tree, there's a field There's a pansy And everything is gone. So now, two years later, he works his way into starting again, into thinking about how he can go on with this poem. And he does that by coming up with a different story of what's happened to him, a story which is going to enable him to find an intimation of immortality simply by recollecting early childhood. So again, to put this quickly, this is all kind of background for what we'll be reading in the later romantics, to put this quickly. In the first four stanzas, what he's basically saying is there was a time when I was a child where I was up here, and then somehow I got from here to here, and now I'm here forever down here, down where I've fallen. But now in stanza five, he's going to give a little bit of a a subtly different picture. And the subtle difference of that picture is what enables him to go on. He begins, stanza five, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, the soul that rises with us, our life's star, that's one of the things, again, that Shelley picks up, that word, you know, the star um, that... that, um, guided everyone the soul that rises with us our life star hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar so in stanza one he said childhood was when everything was apparelled in celestial light now in stanza five he's saying actually as soon as we're born we're already falling asleep and forgetting what we once were it's not that childhood was great It's not that childhood represents what was best in the soul's possibility. It's rather childhood still retained some glory even as it was already the beginning of loss. So the first four stanzas is, I've lost my childhood. Stanza five begins by saying, no, when you're born, childhood is already the process of loss. It's not what you've lost, which is what he had thought. It is itself the beginning of the process of loss. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. A sleep and a forgetting of what? Of pre-existence. The idea here is from Plato that before we're born, we belong to the realm of the ideal. And when our souls come to earth, they come with Amnesia of this ideal realm. We come forgetting everything, but still with the knowledge of the ideal. So, those of you who've read Plato, has anyone read Plato? Um, All right, well, Plato's Plato's idea is basically you can get people simply by, by asking them mathematical questions. That's his demonstration of this. You can get them. to work things out, to figure out things about ideal realms. Um, We know that every triangle has 180 degrees, even though we've never seen a triangle, because there are no triangles in the real world. They're triangular, kind of vaguely triangular things, but if you remember high school math, there are no triangles in the real world. There are no circles in the real world. Um, Everything in the real world is messy and and inchoate. Um, But we can still Using pure thought we can say things about stuff that we've never experienced in the real world how do we do it? somehow we have access through our minds to something that nevertheless we don't remember how we have access to it so Plato says when you're born you're born with amnesia but still knowledge of this ideal world now, Wordsworth doesn't believe that. He said later that for him it was just extremely useful to help him think through what he wants to think through here, that idea. So, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, the soul that rises with us, our life star at that elsewhere it's setting, and cometh from afar. The thing to see there, and this actually, most footnotes to this poem, if you get a footnoted version, we'll get it wrong, the soul that rises with us, our life star, is not the sun. A lot of people say the imagery there is the sun rises when we rise, and then as the day goes on, the sun gets brighter and brighter, and then it sets, and that's death. But the soul that rises with us, our life star, has had elsewhere its setting, means that that soul has not set in this world and the image he's actually using here and that Shelley saw that he was using as you will see later um, is that the solar rises with us is the morning star so if you remember your astronomy what you remember is that Venus the planet Venus, the morning star is the planet Venus. Does everyone know that? If you talk about the morning star you're talking about the planet, planet Venus um, in paradise in sorry in isaiah in the book of isaiah the morning star is named lucifer and the book of isaiah is the first hint of what in christian mythology is going to be the fall of satan or of lucifer lucifer literally means the bearer of light the carrier of light and the morning star is that bearer or carrier of light So Venus, the planet Venus is the morning star. It can also be the evening star. So sometimes you will see Venus in the western sky for about an hour after sunset. And sometimes you will see Venus in the eastern sky for about an hour before sunrise. But never both. If you see Venus as the morning star, it took a long time before astronomers were convinced they were, I mean, before ancient astronomers were convinced that they were the same thing. Sort of like Superman and Clark Kent, you never saw the morning star and the evening star in the same time of year. Either you would see the morning star, but you would not see an evening star, or you would see the evening star, but you would not see the morning star. And the reason is that Venus is closer, although they didn't know it, the reason is that Venus is closer to the sun than we are. So if we see Venus, we're either going to see it, we're looking in the same general direction as the sun, and so it'll either rise a little bit before the sun, or it'll set a little bit after the sun. But Venus is a star that we only see on the horizon. You never see Venus anywhere except on the horizon. You know, within, within um, 10 or 15 degrees of the horizon and you only see it either in the evening or in the morning but never both so that's the image that Wordsworth is using here the soul that rises with us our light's star hath had elsewhere its setting if it's rising with us it's the morning star and then it hasn't set in this world in this realm because it's not the evening star. So the soul that rises with us, our life star, that elsewhere it's setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. So childhood looks great because we're still trailing clouds of glory. Our soul comes from elsewhere as Venus does and still possesses a light that is different from sunlight. Here, forget the fact that Venus is actually reflecting sunlight. Um, the image that Wordsworth is using is the light is something other than the light of the sun. and comes from somewhere else. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. So even though we're already forgetting, we're still so close to it that we see heaven Everywhere. But then shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. But he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. So the splendid vision is Venus as the morning star. What happens is Venus rises before sunrise, and goes higher and higher into the sky. That's great, but the sun rises after it, and we no longer see Venus. So, the youth who daily farther from these must travel still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid, is on his way attended. Still sees the star. At length, the man. So we go from from infancy to boy to youth to man. At length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So eventually the sun rises and we can no longer see Venus. It dies away and fades into the light of common day. So what light is that? Sorry? The The sunlight and the light that isn't celestial. The light that mortal sight sees but not immortal sight and what word would you like to underline in that last line as the word Shelley would have picked up on again? Common, common. again, yeah. So there was a time when meadow grove and streamed the earth in every common sight to me did seem parallel in celestial light. Now it all fades away to the light of common day. Um, so now he describes what happens to us. We lose celestial light, but earth, not heaven, but earth, fills her lap with pleasures of her own, yearning she hath in her own natural kind, and even with something of a mother's mind and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child, her inmate man forget the glories he hath known and that imperial palace whence he came. So earth works to comfort us for the fact that we're no longer in heaven and gives us all sorts of joys in our childhood. Wonderful, wonderful joys that we don't recognize or substitutes for the imperial palace where we come from and the glories that we once knew. Look at the child, he says. He's actually now looking at um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's young son, um, who's six years old when he writes this. Um, if any of you read Frost and Midnight, do you know the Coleridge bomb Frost and Midnight? That's the baby sleeping by Coleridge as he writes that poem, My Beautiful Babe, he says. Um, so now it's five years later after Frost of Midnight. Now the baby's a six-year-old. Behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six-year darling of a pygmy size, um, generally regarded as the worst line in the poem, um, a six-year darling of a pygmy size, See where mid-work of his own hand he lies, fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses, with light upon him from his father's eyes, that is from Coleridge. See at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life, shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or a funeral. And this hath now his heart, and unto this he frames his song. Then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife but it will not be long ere this be thrown aside and with new joy and pride the little actor cons another part filling from time to time his humorous stage that's a, that's a line from a different poet um, that words liked, like filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. So look at the strength and ebullience and Energy and effervescence of this six year old who is imitating all aspects, all ages of life, the seven ages of man, as Jaques calls them in As You Like It, everything um, that he will eventually go through for real. He can do it because he's at that transition between heavenly glory and um, earthly fate. And he has no idea what it's really like to be an Earthling. But he really likes playing and imitating being, earth, being an Earthling. Um, and that's the transition, is that what we do for fun as kids is what we become as adults. You think of all the ways that you see the adults around you and you imitate them all the time. Knowing and yet not having a clue that that's what you're going to turn into. Not having a clue what that means, that that will be you one day. So that's what Wordsworth is seeing the six-year-old boy doing. And he addresses him in his thought, thou, whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity. So he's only a little six-year-old, but his soul is immense. Thou whose exterior semblance doth belie Thy soul's immensity Thou best philosopher Who yet dost keep thy heritage Still is in touch With his heavenly background Thou I among the blind the deaf and silent Reads the eternal deep Haunted forever by the eternal mind Mighty prophet, seer, blessed On whom those truths do rest Which we are toiling all our lives to find in darkness, lost the darkness of the grave. So he looks at the child. Remember he's looked at the boy before, um, playing the tabor. And now he looks at this child and says, "Here we are, adults, lost in darkness, the darkness of the grave, and then there's you, the child, still seeing things appareled in celestial light, as I once did. Thou, over whom thy immortality broods like the day, a master." Or a slave A presence which is not to be put by um, Thou Little Child Yet glorious In the might of heaven-born Freedom on thy being's Height So there you are Still with that heaven-born freedom Why? Why are you doing this? Why with such earnest pains Dost thou provoke the years To bring the inevitable yoke They're going to bring that yoke anyhow. Thus blindly with thy blessedness and strife, full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freighted custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. So before he had addressed the living creatures and said, ye blessed creatures, I uh, I have heard the call ye to each other make, Now he's addressing the blessed child and says, but you're in strife with your own blessedness. You are hastening to adulthood, not understanding where Where you're going. You're blind to your own vision is the paradox that that he has here. Thus, blindly with thy blessedness and strife. The blindness of Milton? No. The blindness of someone with mortal sight He had been an eye among the blind at line 111, but now he is blind himself. And so that extremely depressing account of childhood goes through an amazing turnaround. 180 flip at the beginning of stanza nine. And here you have to think of Satan. That is, the word he's going to use here is embers. And you should think of that almost as finding here in darkness and in flame, in some strange concatenation of darkness and flame, a reason for joy. Oh, joy, that comes out of nowhere. And the whole pivot of the poem is why he should feel joy when he thinks about how the child is going to feel as bad as he does. Oh, joy that in our embers is something that doesn't live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. So now what he's saying is, I look at this child and I can't believe where he's hastening and how blind he is to his own blessings. And then he says, but as soon as I say that, I realize that he may be blind to it, but I see it. I can still remember what that was like. I miss the celestial light, but missing it is what enables me to see it as celestial. Not to just think, Yeah, it it would be fun to pretend to be a, a lawyer or a doctor or a palsied old man, but no, now I see the truth of the energy that he has but doesn't understand, that I've lost but can now understand. So something still lives in me. Oh joy, that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive the thought of past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction remember ye blessed creatures I have heard the call ye to each other make he's blessed them before but now he says actually I still bless them but for a different reason now now that I've thought myself to this point the thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed it's a shocking line really important to see Wordsworth's greatness as partly his utter perverse surprisingness I don't bless things I don't give them my benediction for what it's worthy for what they should be blessed for he's very open about that the thought of our past years in me doth read perpetual benediction not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed things like delight and liberty the simple creed of childhood whether busy or at rest with new fledged hope still fluttering in his breast so I see the children and they're beautiful and they have a simple creed of childhood and they're full of delight and liberty and I'm filled with blessing but that's not why that's why they should be blessed but that's not why I feel blessing at that point quite the reverse not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise, but for something else, namely those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. So he says, I am full of blessing because of the misgivings that I feel, the blank misgivings. Remember what Milton has described, the Book of Knowledge Fair, that people who can see can see. He says, and I, for the Book of Knowledge Fair, am presented with a universal blank. Somehow Wordsworth has now strangely achieved a sense of blank misgiving. Something is wrong here, he's saying. And the fact that I feel that, I can't even say what would be right. I can no longer see what would be right. But the fact that I feel that there's something wrong, that's what's so great. My questionings of sense and outward things, I don't believe in this world. Blank mis- fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. There's something in this world and in any world I can imagine that isn't good enough. High instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. But for those first affections, those shadowy recollections, which be they what they may are yet the fountain light of all our day are yet a master light of all our seeing. Fountain light remember Milton on light or hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream whose fountain who shall tell so here's this fountain light what is that fountain light shadowy recollections something I don't remember but I know something is missing and the fact that something is missing that I can feel that it's gone thrills me What would be terrible is if I couldn't feel that it was gone, if I didn't know something was missing. But something is missing. Something is wrong. Something is blank about my experience now. And that is itself, whatever it is, a kind of light to me. All these things are the fountain light of all our day, a master light of all our seeing. They uphold us, cherish and have power to make our noisy years see moments in the being of the eternal silence, truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness, nor mad endeavor, nor man, nor boy, nor all that is in enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. I always feel, and this is where poetry comes from, the sense of something that isn't there, absence, a perpetual Persistent absence which itself becomes a source of joy because it means that this world isn't enough for the mind that to quote Satan now the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven the mind is not simply the slave to the world that it's in Hence, in a season of calm weather, though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither. Can in a moment travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. So even if I'm inland in this world, I can still look out and see the sea from which I came. The children are just having fun on the shore. They don't know what's going to happen to them but I can see it from where I am. If you guys have read Catcher in the Rye, this is really the major source for Holden Caulfield thinking, yeah, the children will play in the rye, and I will be at the cliff preventing them from falling over. I'll be the catcher in the rye. I can see the truth. I love the children. They're so sweet and innocent. But it's Holden who has the, really intense experience because he's not sweet and innocent and therefore knowing what he's lost which is being like them like the children playing who don't know what they're going to lose who don't know that this is a life that they will lose is what makes Holden Holden what makes Holden Depth comes from loss. That's what Wordsworth is saying. So now he celebrates. So in the fiction of the poem, it's still the same day. Remember what he says is, um, at the beginning of stanza three, Now while the birds thus sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound as to the tapers sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. Now he's saying, go ahead and sing. Then sing, ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song, and let the young lambs bound as to the tapers sound. We in thought will join your throng. Ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the may. What, though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight? What, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass? of glory in the flower. All that's true. The radiance is gone. Nothing will bring that hour back. Nevertheless, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind, in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be. And then the really strange lines. But this is the poem in a nutshell in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. So somehow human suffering is soothing. Gives you soothing thoughts. Not thoughts that calm you down. This isn't like self-soothing. But this is, now I understand that the very fact that I'm suffering shows my freedom shows my access to these depths. Again, think of Satan. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor. So the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering in the faith that looks through death and years that bring the philosophic mind. So the child thinks this is the only life there is. But in the philosophic mind, the mind that is now devoted to thought rather than feeling, we can see beyond that. And so finally stanza, the last stanza. And O ye ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, returning us to the beginning and returning us to book three of Paradise Lost. Forbode not any severing of our loves, yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might. I still feel how powerful you are because I feel what I've lost. But now that turns into, I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway. I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I tripped lightly as they. So he thought he'd lost his love for them, but that loss... As soon as he thinks about that loss, well, two years of thinking about that loss, increases his love for them even more than when I trip lightly as they. The innocent brightness of a newborn day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun, so now it's sunset, and Venus isn't setting there, it's clouds the clouds that gather around the setting sun do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch or man's mortality. Another race have been and other palms are won. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears." so before he'd said the pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat Whither has fled the visionary gleam where is it now the glory and the dream and now he's saying the fact that this flower or a flower any flower can cause him to have these thoughts means actually that he's deeper now through loss than he ever was through having. It's amazing that it used to be, everything was appareled with celestial light, fountain, um, fountain, grove, stream, meadow, all appareled with celestial light. Now, a mean flower, a flower which isn't beautiful in any way, in no way appareled with celestial light. That's all gone. But he can look at that flower and that will give rise to thoughts too deep for tears. So what's happened, again, to repeat the formulation that I used on Tuesday, what's happened is Wordsworth in this poem has turned a sense of the loss of intensity into a sense of the intensity of loss. The experience of loss becomes something greater than the thing that's been lost. Its absence is more intense than its presence ever was. It's at least in this world. Its presence is something you see in the child pretending, playing all these pretend games. But its absence is what the poet feels. So that flip. Which we saw in the words, Oh joy that in our embers is something that doth live. That flip from where you go from loss of intensity to intensity of loss. That's the flip of how the Romantics, the basic, fundamental way that the Romantics, in their poetry, try to cope with. What Emerson calls the unhandsomeness of human life, the tragedy of human life, is to make our knowledge of what we're losing, of what we've lost, into something amazing. That amazing thing being the thought, the thoughts that lie too deep for tears and the expression of that thought, the poems that express that thought. So you can't understand a romantic poem if you're happy, if you're happy in your life. You can't understand a romantic poem if you're happy in your life, in a simple way of being happy. I mean, there are other definitions of happiness, but if you just take the simplest definition childlike happiness, innocence what Blake calls innocence in the songs of innocence and experience and of experience you can't possibly understand a romantic poem what it takes to understand a romantic poem is to feel that this poem is not only compensation for but even potentially more than compensation for the loss that it records. Beckett has a poem, Samuel Beckett, the um, playwright, has also, was al- also wrote about um, a, sl- a, a small number of poems in his life, um, all of which are quite wonderful, but one of his poems um, expresses a very common experience that people have, um, but he just, up, and expresses it. And the poem goes, I would like my love to die. It's the first line of the poem. I would like my love to die and for the rain to be falling on the graveyard and on me walking the wet streets, mourning the first and last to ever love me. And if that makes sense, Not does it make sense, would you really do that, could you admit it to yourself? But if it makes sense as even just a flicker of, yeah, I see that. It's because the way you can experience the purity of your own love is in mourning. Mourning is the purest form of love. When you're with someone, you know, they're just that person. And you can be totally in love with them. But still, they're just a person with all the problems that a person means. But if they're dead, or if you imagine them dead, you can imagine how intensely you would grieve. And you could want to have that experience of intense grief, because that would be the purity of your love. So if that makes sense, if the Beckett poem makes sense, and I take it that it does, If that poem makes sense, if you're not just saying, what is he talking about? I don't want my love to die, that's ridiculous. Um, But if the poem makes sense, the sense it makes is the sense that the romantics are trying to make out of the fact that everything that matters to us does die, at least metaphorically. Everything that once was so powerful now can only be powerful, but perhaps much more powerful in its loss. No kids are ever as happy as we remember ourselves as being when we miss the things that we miss. That's what Wordsworth is pointing out here by looking at Hartley Coleridge, at at Coleridge's little son. That the children, it's just, yeah, they're in this world, that's the stuff they're doing. They're bored, they're they're um, lonely, they're fussing, they're frustrated, they're having a good time playing with their toys and whatever. When we remember our own past doing that, sometimes it can be just such a thing to miss. But if you look at a real child doing it, you can't imagine that they're going to miss it the way you miss it. If you have little siblings, you'll know this. So somehow missing is more And that's what Satan is celebrating in Paradise Lost as well, where that's what Wordsworth is seeing, and the later Romantics are seeing, in the preference for loss plus freedom, loss plus the intensity to think about that loss, versus having but not being free, having but just being there. Um, without any sense of your mind's own power to deal with what it loses. And again, that's the spin that Shelley's putting on this when he says, you wrote these amazing poems about loss turning into intensity, but then you lost that intensity of those amazing poems. And... That is what I am deploring. You, fe- you feel it in the sense that it's your loss, but I'm the one deploring it because you don't actually get it anymore. You've turned into something like that child who doesn't know what he's about to lose, except you're an adult, and the one compensation for being an adult, which is knowing, you don't have that anymore either. So that's what Shelley wants to preserve. Okay, for... um. Tuesday. Um, if you get the bo- the volume of Byron in the bookstore, um, what you will find are oh I didn't I should say Shelley. There. Uh what you will find are there um, some short poems by him. Oh, I should have I'll, I'll I'll email you with the page numbers. There's also and there there's about 20 pages of letters by him, which is really worth reading. Um There's also a poem by Shelley to read for Tuesday, which is in the Norton um, Shelley, the Rhyman and Powers, called Julian and Madelow. So that's what to read are these lyrics by Byron as well and his letters. And then the Shelley poem called Julian and Madelow, which is a conversation, a poem about a conversation between himself and Byron. Um, All right, have a good weekend.